Welcome to the Revital Health Podcast. I'm Jodie Duval and I'm a functional naturopath in Perth, WA. This is a place where you can expand your knowledge on how to optimise your health and realise your full potential. We'll have cutting edge information with expert guests and having lots of fun along the way. Get ready to be empowered and motivated to reach your higher vitality and find your ultimate potential. Let's go! Revital Health is a proud member of the Health Optimization Network. Health Optimization Medicine and Practice is a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to educate doctors and practitioners on how to optimize for health rather than treating disease. If you're interested in becoming a practitioner or donating, head over to homehope.org. Revital Health Clinic is the first and only of its kind exclusive health optimization clinic in Australia with state-of-the-art technology, protocols and personalised healthcare, compounded medicines made specifically to your testing individualities. To find out more, head to revitalhealth.com.au. We are honoured today to have Dr. Susan Russell join us for um, the world-first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy chat, as well as talking about Dr. Susan's immense experience in psychology So Dr. Susan is a leading clinical neuropsychologist and researcher based in Australia. She is widely recognised for her contributions to the field of cognitive neuroscience, neuropsychology and mental health. Dr. Russell is currently a professor of cognitive neuropsychology and director of the Brain and Psychological Sciences Research Centre at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. She completed her undergraduate degree at Monash University before obtaining her PhD in psychology from the University of Melbourne. Her research focuses on understanding the neural mechanisms that underlie mental health conditions such as schizophrenia, bipolar and anxiety disorders. She has published numerous papers in peer-reviewed journals and has received several prestigious awards for her research, including the Australian Psychological Society's Early Career Research Award and the Who's Who in the World Lifetime Achievement Award. In addition to her research, Dr. Russell is also heavily involved in clinical practice and she has worked in both public and private hospitals providing neuropsychological assessments and interventions to individuals with a range of neurological and psychiatric conditions. She is a very highly respected figure with over 250 published research articles and we had a fantastic chat with her and with up-and-coming legalisation of psilocybin and MDMA treatments, we really covered a lot in here. So we really hope you enjoy, and we hope that it gives you some really big insight into what's coming and what's so big in Australia. Right, welcome, Dr. Susan Russell, and thank you so much for coming on for us and in the podcast here at Revital Health. And I really look forward to discussing the wide range of psychology that we've got to talk about today. Nice to meet you both. Thank you. Um, And on a special treat for the listeners there, we've not ever had someone else aside at the Revital Health um, podcast here, but Ella Goff has joined us because of her interest and her studies and her almost completion of her psychology degree. So she is going to help me with some of the technical questions that I may not know about (laughs) and um, so we can add to everyone's benefit uh, on the podcast here. So Dr. Susan, I love to ask and I love to see where and how, what drew you into the field of psychology and specifically now into your fields of research. 
um because they're they're very well they're different to a lot of other psychology areas Mm, yeah so I'm a a cognitive neuropsychologist so that's a really long mouthful I'm very well aware basically means I'm a quite a nerd um uh, so I love psychology but I also you know really like uh the interaction um with um psychological processes and the brain and really understanding where that biological um input and driver of our psychological processes are and why did I start I mean I, I was I was always interested in the brain when I was a kid um and I had um uh, people in my family have some quite profound brain disorders um, and it was just one of those things in biology class that I, I just couldn't put down. You know, I was constantly reading books on, on the brain. Um, why, why did I go into, I guess, a lot of people ask me, you know, what, why, why did I go into psychology and end up as a psychologist rather than, say, perhaps a neurologist if I'm interested in the brain or a psychiatrist? And I think it was because when I was at university, I, I did I did start studying medicine and I did start, you know, thinking about either being a neurologist or a psychiatrist. One of the things that I found when I was in the early part of my career is that the 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 treatments that are available for people with um, mental health problems or brain or brain problems sort of more broadly are very limited. Um, we've got a few different medications that can help and we've got a, a few different kind of um, you know brain training packages and you know years ago we had virtually nothing. And so that that psychological element where there was a lot more research and a lot more emphasis on developing new interventions was um, something that I became quite passionate about. And I saw that you could perhaps develop new interventions, um, I don't know, in in a, I I guess, a safer, easier, more um, forward thinking space than perhaps neurologists and psychiatrists were at the time. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true now. I think, you know, we all work together. But at the time, I did feel that there was more space to move as a psychologist. Mm, Yeah, very interesting. And the field has grown so dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah involved in it but I can see and hear about how quickly everything has moved and changed um, and and tools of psychologists as well so what fascinates me is that um, your field of work in in schizophrenia and psychosis um, that that's fascinating and what sort of led you down into that path specifically was there anything that personally led you in there was there anything Mm -hmm. that you saw with clients that was in a necessary need Mm. So um yeah, I referred to family members that had um um was unwell when I was a child. So I did have an uncle yeah. uh, that had uh, uh voices that heard voices and heard voices throughout my whole childhood. And my mom was um very close and, and and it used to devastate the family. And when I had an opportunity to do my PhD with world leading experts um on the the hearing voices phenomena, I really you know grasped that with open arms because it sort of was something that 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 had affected my family and 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 something that I knew that we knew very little about at the time. Uh, so that's where I did my PhD, and so the first at least ten years of my career was um and and still now I've still got very many active projects looking at not only trying to to understand how and why people hear voices uh, but then how we develop better interventions to help them uh, through my PhD I was one of the first people to show what brain regions were um, uh, involved in voice hearing 
And, and I mean, that might seem kind of quite like old old news now. Like, of course, the brain is doing something when we're having these mental experiences. But I think at the time it was new, like like it, it really helped with reducing stigma. And, and, and that was a good thing in, you know, in our, in our family. You know, when you have someone with a profound mental health um, condition that with symptoms that a lot of people don't understand, actually saying, actually, this is caused from their brain. They're not making it up. Um, there is something very different happening in their brain when they're having that experience that you and I just don't experience because we don't have these phenomena. It was it was great stigma reducing um, and and. Yeah, and so that's how I ended up working on that, and and still do. Mm-hmm. And and it is something that obviously the the state of mind is so important for us. You know, it's how we perceive the world, it's how we perceive others, it's how we interact with others. Mm-hmm. From a basic, um, simplistic sense, which I'm coming from, I mm-hmm. see it as such a um, a very unnerving thing when you're when you're trying to, and even with my clients that I see in clinic here, not knowing what state of mind they are. You know it you're trying to address it from a point of view where you perceive your mind and how much that is impacting the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the client in front of you, how do you get through to them if you don't really know and understand what they are perceiving? I guess that's what my point is. And that's what fascinates me so much. And obviously I also deal with a lot of body, body dysmorphia and um, body issues with women, particularly in clinic here as a naturopath as well. So the psychology behind that also fascinates me. And it's again, it's that state of mind, how their perception is on the world and on themselves. Absolutely. And that that's that's the thread. So, you know, people say to me, oh, they look at my CV and there's this massive uh, different um, like array of publications and different things that I do. And I, the way I see it, there isn't. OK, because what I what, what I got interested in very early in my career is sort of what you're touching on is how do people experience the world and then and then so what what is their perception of the world and how is their perception of the world leading to their thought processes and their beliefs and so when you when you go through each of the mental health conditions that I actually have done a lot of work in all of them are having unusual sensations, unusual perceptions of the worlds around them, and that is developing into unusual beliefs. So take someone with schizophrenia that hears voices, that becomes very paranoid that people are talking to them. Take people with body dysmorphia that they're having unusual bodily sensations and unusual visions of their body, and then they develop these unusual these unusual ideas that there's something wrong with their body and that they can become very distressed about it. And you take all the conditions that I actually do the most work with, and that's that's what the link is what is it about the way that they see the world what is different about the way that they see the world and obviously I've done a lot of work on hearing in voice hearing and vision in body dysmorphia and so on and how are those unusual sensations and perceptions leading to their unusual beliefs and I refer to them mostly when I'm talking to the general public as unusual beliefs as opposed to delusions but then you know medical people talk about them as delusions but it's the same thing an unusual belief a delusion you know the same and and it is critical I think to helping people with these conditions that interface and that's why I became a neuropsychologist is the behavior but it's also what our brain is doing at the same time Mm -hmm. and to understand that because when you're perceiving these things and even as a person who is quite open-minded and I'll jump into it we'll talk about psychedelics later on because I think that's a really important follow-on not only a tool but also a trigger in some of these cases Mm -hmm. Um, but when you're when you're talking to someone like that, you want to be open minded because there's new things discovered all the time. You know? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Having 
to be open-minded to the fact that these people are actually telling us something new that we don't know, but is actually true. Absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah. For me, it's, it's determining like what, what is true and what is real and how do we ever know what is true and what is real? And I guess the, the brain, you know, testing imagery, things like that can also help us along that way. But I guess that is a question um, for, for you, I, you know, that, that I have. Um, it's true and real to the person experiencing it. And I think that that's, I think that that's what, you know, the last 20 years of research that people like myself and have, 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 have put forward. I, I think, you know, that, that that stigma that was around in, you know, the, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, even, you know, that people with mental health conditions weren't experiencing real things. They were made up and they should be locked up or put in mental asylums because the way that they were telling you they, that they perceived the world was false. Yeah, it was false to them, but it's not false to this person. They are having these experiences and these experiences are often extremely traumatic for them and especially because they know people around them aren't having them so mm. I, I I I try and get away from describing things as real because it's it, it's it's your it's your perception and there's no argument that that it's your perception and I uh, I guess one of the other things I could emphasize here is um it's all about levels of distress as well. So, you know, a lot of us can have different kind of experiences, you know, related to, um, you know, visual experiences related to all kinds of experience, uh, like, like whether we're tired or we've had too much to drink or, you know, um, uh, we've taken a substance that might cause these things. And we're all experiencing them quite differently. However, are we distressed by them? Oh, if we're distressed by them, then in terms of uh, in terms of the medical profession, we need to take that very seriously. If it's all done and fun and it doesn't really matter, does it? Doesn't really matter. So I, I guess there are two things to for your listeners to to really think about here is all experiences are real to that person, and it's whether that experience is distressing or not. Yeah, very interesting. Ella, sorry, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I was just going to ask, with cognitive uh, neuropsychology necessarily comes the use of neuroimaging techniques. Mm -hmm. Could you talk um, to that as it relates to this destabilization of stigmas in the mm -hmm. realm of cognitive mm -hmm. neuropsychology? Yeah, sure. So a couple of, I mean, I, I think I think in the initial stages, um, as I was referring to, I think it, it helped with stigma in terms of um, helping the general public see how a lot of mental health conditions are represented in, in the brain. And and the and the experiences like I've been referring to, so visual or auditory hallucinations are are you know represented. So so for example, when I'm speaking to you now, your brain, uh, your auditory and your language centers are active because you're listening to my speech. With people that have visual hallucinations or auditory hallucinations, and they're in a room on their own, and there is no you know sensation, they're having those same brain regions activated. And there is no stimulation because um, there's no one speaking to them or there's no movement in the room. So I, I think that that's, that's, that was a really crucial thing. As I say, the, the experiences are real to that person and their brain is doing something at the time. So I think that that's really a, a good a good example of reducing stinger. I think the other thing is, and, and, I'm, and, and even though we have had neuroimaging around for quite a long time now, a good sort of 30, 40 years, I think in some ways it's been 
been a little bit disappointing um, how how much we use that in terms of diagnosis of mental health conditions. Um, I think it's been really good with diagnosis of neurological conditions. So things like dementias, um, tumors, strokes. I think it's been amazing. Mental health conditions, it's actually been incredibly disappointing. And do you know why? Because the brain is extremely complex and we're still working out how the brain represents mental health um, conditions as, as complete disorders. As yeah. phenomena like hallucinations, we do have a quite a big understanding. So there's still a way to go, but we, we but I think that that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you. And it's interesting how um, for depression, for example, it could be due to um, a whole host of, um, you know, reasons. But we, when we don't look at the brain per se, we are missing the um, whether it could be due to a lesion or whether that's it's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about any mental health condition, one of the sort of the, the there's a number of factors that we tick off when we're trying to understand what's what's led someone to this mental health condition. We're trying to tick off biological um, influences. So, you know, is, is there something obviously wrong with the brain? Is there a lesion? Is there something obviously wrong with any kind of um, metabolic or physiological process in the brain in the body sorry so biological processes then we look at psychological processes and we also look at social and environmental so as as clinicians that's that's what we do when we're diagnosing people with mental health conditions and like you say um biology is critical to mental health conditions mm. so susan with the you know talking on that in terms of what can cause or what can lead to is there is there sort of a broad spectrum of like percentage of this causes this and the percentage of this or it occurs from trauma based um, starts or is there is there you know substance abuse is there so, sort of a wide range of things that you could sort of put into you know boxes I hate to do that but is there certain things that you look at. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I would, I, I would not like to give percentages, but yeah, all of the things, all of the things that you have said. So you know, biology, we all sorts of physiology, um, genetics, brain problems. We look at all of them. Uh, um, in terms of environmental influences, we look at things like trauma and culture and family background. Um, and, then, uh, and then psychological processes, sort of uh, drug abuse sits across sort of both of those. So, you know, have you abused your body? Um, and not only abused your body with alcohol and substances, but sometimes have you abused your body? Have you been, you know, you know, not eaten enough or eaten too much or eaten bad food? Or, you know, what, what have you put in your body that might have actually uh, lead to, you know, serious long-term side effects? Um, I... I, you know, I, I know when people go and see um, uh, mental health professionals, we don't have very long sometimes to do diagnostic assessments, but we are trying to review all of those different features to to come up with, uh, I guess, a formulation as to why you have those mental health symptoms that are sitting in front of us. Yeah, as you said before, it's so complex. The body is so complex, and there, and even when we're we've got clients in front of us, you know, we 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 don't deal as such with the mental health. It's it's another component of health that we need to you know mm -hmm. adhere to and and look at. And there's a cellular component to that. There's a the mitochondria. There's deficiencies. There's toxicities. You know, you can very basically look at all that, but 
you know, how, how do you, you know, you've got to build some sort of plan with that. And obviously all the tools and techniques on top of it can help them progress into um, either remission or support and then, you know, full recovery after that. So, you know, systematically, I like to, to, to move through it a little bit more, but obviously bringing any new research or anything else that you wanted to mention through. But where, where are we looking at for specifically these schizophrenic psychosis, um, even body dysmorphia or any of these perception changes? How, how is recovery fared for these people? And obviously it is so dependent on what is going on in each person's life and what they're willing and able to do. Um, but your experience with this. Yeah, a lot, lot to unpack in that question. So I'll unpack a, a, a little of, you know, different segments of it. So um, yeah. I, I guess, I guess the, firstly, what, what we do when we, when we are presented with someone with one of the disorders that I work with, is there are some um, uh, standard interventions that do work um, for some people. And so you, you referred to percentages earlier, and this is a percentage I feel quite comfortable talking about. So about a third of the people that come through any clinic door with any kind of mental health condition, it doesn't matter whether it's schizophrenia or body dysmorphia or depression or bipolar disorder or OCD, or about a third do seem to get better with the treatments that we have available for us at the moment. About a third have a fluctuating course. So sometimes they work and sometimes they relapse and we need to tweak them. And, and it's like they're fluctuating and we're constantly trying to manage that. And then a third don't get better at all with the tools that we have at the moment. And so it's really those, obviously, those second two groups that people like myself are really working very hard to try and um, um, design and find new interventions for. So part of the problem that we have in mental health and they've had for quite a long time is that um, there has been no what ref we refer to as CNS, so central nervous system drug development for mental health conditions for nearly 30 years now. The pharmaceutical companies all pulled out and we, you know, we have our standard toolbox of we have some antidepressants and we have some antipsychotics and we have some anxiety related medications, but we're not going to get anything new. And I think that that's really critical when you're thinking about mental health and for people to know there aren't there are, there is there is no like miracle brand new medication coming out for mental health disorders at the moment. Yeah. So what people like myself have been interested in is uh, is finding new interventions and, and it can be new interventions across anything so believe me we've all we've looked at you know mm -hmm. yoga and mindfulness and acupuncture and nutraceuticals and then one of the things that I know you want to talk to me about is taking interventions or products or compounds or whatever you want to call them um, from other walks of life um, that have had some success so one of the projects at the moment is I actually have been taking insulin 
um, which we know treats diabetes, but to actually treat people with cognitive issues because insulin increases glucose in the brain and it makes you think clearly. So trying to take medications or from other walks of life and use them with mental health conditions um, in very unique and sort of clever ways. And that's where the psychedelics world came from, because we're so short of these novel new pharmaceuticals coming down the track. We're having to think outside the box. Mm, that's so fascinating. So on that, with the pharmaceuticals, you know, in your opinion, and you may not be able to comment on this, but Obviously, from a pharmaceutical perspective, when we look at it, there are certain side effects with some pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So obviously, there's going to be side effects with psychedelics as well. Mm -hmm. But in your opinion, is there going to be less side effects or more positive outcomes from what you've seen already with some of these other fringe treatments? Very difficult to say. Okay, so so I mean, this is this is one of the reasons why we talk about a third, a third, a third as well. So a third of people take, you know, uh, what we refer to as gold standard mental health interventions, whether it's with a, a you know an antidepressant or an antipsychotic, and they get better and they don't have a massive side effect profile and just you know on their way. Yes, they may need to take whatever medication we prescribe for them for the next thirty years, but they just seem to, it just seems to work for them. And I think it's one of the things you refer to everyone's physiology is different and we're still trying to understand that so and I think that this comes back to your actual question that that you're asking me is there a massive side effect profile by from side of psychedelics the answer is no but watch this space Mm -hmm. so physically we know that there is because we actually know what these compounds are in terms of the the the, what they do to our brain and they're usually uh you know a single dose and we know that it's not got the really long-term side effect profile as say as some of the antipsychotics or the antidepressants so the answer is physically no Mm -hmm. mentally possibly and we don't have the data to even answer that and why do i say mentally possibly so when you think about taking a psychedelic it causes a profound experience it causes us to completely dissociate from the reality that that we know so me talking to you now you know i get visual disturbances i might have out of body experiences i might not feel myself i might feel really uncomfortable or anxious or a whole pile of things. And one of the things is we draw on that, and I can talk to you about that in a minute. uh, We draw on that experience to help people work through some of their issues. But we don't know whether the trauma and the dissociation and the hallucinations long-term are actually going to have mental health problems, like a trauma, like it. so, So some people talk about it as bad trip. You know, are these bad trips going to cause mental health problems down the line? We don't know. Okay, interesting. So Ella, you wanted to say? Just to tepid the realm of, um, tepid the waters of the realm of psychedelics before we fully go into it. Um, Dr. Susan, you've talked before about how psychedelics activate the serotonergic pathway, not the dopaminergic pathway, Mm -hmm. so therefore not leading to, typically not leading to um, substance uh, dependence. Mm -hmm. But is there a tolerance or a risk of tolerance when using um, psilocybin? Yes. Well, (laughs) 
we don't we also don't know that you see because you know uh, i guess um, i mean we've got some anecdotal evidence that there are people out there in the general public you know that have had access to magic mushrooms for you know 20 30 years in their garden and they take them all the time and they say that, that it's really good for their mental health and it makes them feel really well. And, and they seem, you know, they don't seem to have any obvious mental health or neurological problems. But I mean, what are we talking about here it is, is quite complex because we don't know what the potency of the magic mushrooms that go in their garden is. Um, and we do know what the potency of the, I guess, the synthesized um, tablets and capsules that we're using in, in, in medical research or in clinical research at the moment is. And we haven't had people use lots of them because we're still treading our toes in the water, really trying to understand what the positive and then also what the potential negative effects of these compounds are. Like we've got some initial extremely positive data um but you know it's with like any compound and and you know if, if you look in the cancer um area you know we you have to tread carefully um or maybe not cancer because cancer is a little bit kind of like one of those areas that's that, that's a bit controversial anyway because usually if you're treating cancer they're going to die so so often a side effect profile with cancer medications actually more accepted say for example we talk about the cardiovascular disorders you know we tread carefully we don't want people to have more problems than they've got already yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think we will dive in now, but I, I sort of wanted to set the time a little, time a little bit for um, listeners because obviously talking about it in a space where it's, it's going to become a treatment option, possibly, mm -hmm. and I'll let you dive into that for us in Australia as sort of a world leader um, for psilocybin. There are other psychedelics or psychedelic assisted therapies that are worldwide um, I made a, my way to US last year, end of last year, and there's ketamine, there's MDMA, there's a few other availabilities elsewhere in the world. Um, and I know MDMA is going to be one of those considerations for Australia as well. Now, obviously, the, even when talking cannabis and CBD, which is now here and, and being prescribed by doctors, mm -hmm. within that medicine, there is so, and all medicines, there is so much to that. There's the growth mechanism, there's the ability or, or the, the strength, as you alluded to, um, and looking at, obviously, how, how it's used, when it's used, the, the setting it's used in, um, how often, like there's so many things to be worked out and obviously each, and then you've got the individual person who is going to respond differently, different age, different traumas. There is so much to it, which fascinates me, but also scares me for the fact that there is so much more research to be done, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And this is why I was so excited to speak with you about it because you're at the forefront of it. Um, and it's honourable to really lead this searching for things to help people, which I love to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I honour that so much. Um, so let's dive in and let's talk about, you know, what is the next steps? When's it becoming, when's it's coming here? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And what's involved now? Okay. So let me firstly just tell you what psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is. I've sort of alluded to it. So when we're using these uh, uh, these compounds, and like you said, there's ketamine, there's LSD, there's psilocybin, there's MDMA. Um, what we're what we're using them for is like a profound what uh, opening up of the brain. 
Okay, what we find with people with chronic mental health problems, so this third of people that just don't seem to get better, they are stuck. They are stuck in these perceptions that cause them stress and de-stress. So, you know, this is where it all ties back together. They're stuck in, you know, profound sadness if you have depression or they're stuck thinking that they need to engage in these profound rituals. Um, if you've got OCD or BDD, they're just stuck and, and it doesn't matter how many um, antidepressants you give them or how much therapy that you give them, they're just stuck. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've noticed from what the, the psychedelic substances do to the brain is it opens you up. And there's brain, there's brain imaging data to show that basically it opens up your brain. It makes you more amenable to other experiences. And the other experiences that we see when people are having the psychedelic experiences are the visual experiences, are the body experiences. It makes you more in tune with your body. It makes you more in tune with your environment. Um, what we do is we use that psychedelic experience alongside psychotherapy because their psychotherapy has not really got them anywhere, but we need to still continue with the psychotherapy. So it's not like it's it's just a silver bullet. Hey, we'll give you this um, th- this capsule or this tablet that's going to cause this psychedelic experience. And tomorrow you just feel better because they've been stuck for so long, they need to work through why they were stuck. So we open them up and we use those new experiences in therapy to help them work through some of their problems. Mm. And the critical component is one, that they are wanting to do this and two, that we give the environment for them to do it. And that's referred to as the set and the setting, the mindset to actually move forward and the setting that we give them the psychedelic experience. It's pleasant, it's positive and it's supported. Okay, so it's supported by psychotherapists. Um, And then we um, yeah, yeah, we, we can help people move forward. Why the different compounds? So why the ketamine, the MDMA and the, and the uh, well, you know, they all do, do 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 slightly different things to the brain. And I, actually MDMA is not a, a, a is not actually a typical psychedelic. It's actually it's it's a, it's a compound that helps you more get in touch with yourself and your self-compassion and your love for yourself. And so this is one of the reasons why um, MDMA is becoming um, down regulated and will be available um, for PTSD. There is the most data in the world for MDMA psychotherapy for PTSD. That is the condition where I actually think it is extremely reasonable that we are putting it on our prescriber uh, um, scheme from the 1st of July, because there is an awful lot of data. Um, Mm. psilocybin for a treatment resistant depression I am more cautious about I think there's some very positive initial data but I think we're a long way off um, using psilocybin for uh, treatment resistant depression and that has caused a controversy when I've said that uh, in the general public and I'm not saying I'm not supporting it. I'm just saying we need to be cautious. And the reason why we need to be cautious is two or threefold. And we've talked about some of it before, but I'll I'll sort of talk about the the couple of main points. I think it's extremely premature because we've got no long-term safety data on psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for depression, whereas for MDMA and PTSD, we do. So, you know, this is where I draw the contrast. So no long-term safety data. 
We've got no accepted psychotherapy protocols. Everyone, you know, has done something slightly differently. The UK group has done something slightly different from the American groups. Um, we've done something slightly different in Australia. So we're all doing something slightly different. And, and I think given the profound nature of these psychedelics, we need to have some really quite rigid safety protocols. We don't want people having bad trips and going away and, you know, it being in a worse situation than they were before. Um, and the other thing that I've talked about, which has got me into a little bit of trouble, and I'm very happy to talk about it because I really want to clear the air and make sure people understand completely what I'm talking about, is some people, when they have um, the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, um, so psilocybin, for example, and we've had this in our own work, so I know I'm not talking rubbish, <laughs> is they have such a profound opening up they feel so much better than they ever have done in their, you know, 20 years. They've had depression for 20 years. They've been stuck at home. They've, you know, um, hardly um, had jobs. They've ruined a lot of the relationships in life. They get something called the burden of normality. So imagine you're sick for 20 years and someone comes along and gives you this revolutionary new treatment. And all of a sudden you feel the best that you've ever felt in your entire life. Absolutely fantastic, right? Absolutely fantastic. But then you regret the last 20 years of your life. You regret not finishing school. You regret never holding down a job. You regret all the relationships that you've ruined because you have mental health problems. And I'm not saying don't do this. What I am saying, and this is my third kind of safety feature, is we need to make sure that we have really strict guidelines in terms of psychosocial interventions a long-term care and it doesn't matter whether you have a good bad indifferent reaction because we don't have the long-term safety data so we need to make sure that everyone is followed up very carefully for the first few years because these interventions are brand new and we don't know what the long-term profile is and if it works amazing but let's still keep hold of these people and make sure that they don't have any other adverse events absolutely I totally agree with everything you've said and it's been one of my underlying concerns because I've heard about a lot of clients coming through and asking me about it and I have said very similar along the lines because my concerns are with my own experience, and I don't mind saying this, is that when you're under those influences, you're in a greater sense of consciousness or being or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And when you contract back into the reality of the world, if you're not prepared or have done preparation of meditation and being or in increasing your ability to cope or quieten the mind in some way, then the ability to cope in everyday life becomes less. And I think that's what you're all, you're saying is that you're, you then obviously have a greater understanding of where you've messed up, but it's also a greater understanding of like, I don't want to be here. I want to be there. That is the better place. Mm -hmm. So where I see it being is that there is, like you say, a very strict guideline of steps that either people need to make before they do big mm -hmm. trips or big treatments or as well as then lots and lots of follow-up support afterwards so they can integrate so well. And that's what's missing in the underground world of this is that people do these things and that's why they have bad experiences because yeah. there's no one watching them doing it properly and in a guided setting. But I think also is that 
you know, the, the way that the way that you take it, the way that it's 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 done is so important. Like you said, set and setting. It has to be acceptable for these people to then be ready to work through this um, mm-hmm. and then well supported. Absolutely. So there, there is so much to that. And then the physiology, I think, is a big component of it, is actually the body ready to be dealing with this yeah. and have done the right psychotherapy beforehand to actually be able to process these new emotions and new feelings because there's so much that will be moving and removed. Um, and uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we know that people, I, I mean, and this is just a whole nother range of research that I've not even dipped my toes into. You know, we know that people with chronic mental health conditions aren't the kindest to their bodies. You know, we know that they have the highest substance abuse rates and alcohol abuse rates, and we know that they eat bad diets, and we know that they aren't necessarily the healthiest in terms of their exercise. We know all of those things. And I mean, it's the lifestyle factors in psychedelics haven't even been touched on yet. I mean, I do some lifestyle work with in some of my other programs, but like the interface between the two of them, no one's even talking about. And I mean, I I know I need to get there at some point, but there's just so much to do. Um, We're so behind the eight ball. So, so when you were asking me what's changing in Australia, so from the 1st of July, you will actually be able to go to an authorised prescriber, which will be a psychiatrist, and you will be able to get MDMA for PTSD, and you will be able to get um psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for um uh, for treatment resistant depression as i say the um the 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 ptsd there's so much more literature for the the depression that i i my personal opinion is it's premature premature mm. so there'll be clinical research i feel there'll be a lot of data that's collected from those who are going to yeah. be partaking in these treatments yeah i yeah. think we want to um scare or stop being able to use this treatment and by doing it wrong and I and that's where I think you're really feeling like you've been pulled up in the past and 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 you know said that you're not saying the right thing as such but I feel that it's just being careful for the industry for the ability that we've been given this now and we've actually opened the door we don't want to have it close again that's why I want to that's why I keep saying safety 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 about all of these things because I I, like we've got so far with research in this field now like you know if I'd have thought that we could do psychedelics research when I was starting my career I would have thought I was crazy because you know the door on that was very much shut when I was doing my career when I was doing my degrees you know it's been open up I don't want it closing again because people don't engage in safe practices yeah absolutely um sorry Ellie I'll just I just want to ask one more question while I'm thinking of it and I don't forget what, what's that going to look like for people? And I, and that's where my con, not concern is, but I'm just unsure of. Do you see newspaper articles and this and that? I don't want to believe anything until I actually know what's going on. Um, but you know, what does that look like for? It, is it going to be as easy as they are saying it's going to be? No. Okay. So I, I I have massive concerns about this, and in actual fact, so I have I, I have concerns, and I also have conflict of interest. So I'll tell you what the concerns and what the conflict of interest is. The concerns are a massive equity issues. Okay, because. Uh, and uh, actually there's another issue as well we've got a massive training issue in australia nobody is actually trained to do this there's a handful of us are trained to do this so everyone is rushing to go and get training at the moment and there is no training available so that's the other thing apart from some uh, some training that isn't actually registered so don't go and do it because it's not registered 
Anyway, um, so we've got training issues. There's some accepted courses in America that do this, but you know that since Australia um, uh, announced they're all full, so we have training issues. Um, and then we've got equity issues. So for those people that have can find someone that can become an authorised prescriber, um, which there's only a handful in Australia because they won't have the training. And if they don't have the training, they can't get registration and they can't get APRA registration and they can't get insurance. So there's a whole pile of stuff in there. Um, it's going to be really expensive. And it's going to be really expensive because it's got there's a lot of clinician hours. So you think about if I tell you what the standard course of treatment is, you can see how many clinician hours there are yeah. to do this safely. There needs to be two people with you at all times. So there's no abuse um, There's that we can manage your safety. So the, the, there's usually a psychiatrist and a psychologist in the room at the same time. They need to prepare you for the psychedelic event that can take three, four hours to understand your background, your history, why you're doing this, is your set right? Then you have the psychedelic experience, which can be a 10 hour day. And then you need to have integration and more therapy, as I've been referring to, to bring you back to, um, you know, what your problems are and how you have opened up your brain and how you've opened up your experiences. So, you know, that entire package can be two very experienced therapists for, for about 20 hours. Yeah. So equity issues here, I think in the um in the it's good they're going to charge people at least 20 to thirty thousand dollars for yeah. that course of treatment it's going to be really expensive okay wow. so i do have conflict of interest here because one of the things i'm trying to do in my research is actually work out what the cost benefit is um, and so nobody has done that there has been no study in the entire world that's worked out the cost benefit I have the um, massive pleasure of working with Kathy Miolopoulos from uh, Monash University. She's our top mental health health economist in Australia. And she is going to be watching all of our clinical trials over the last few years, uh, next few years. And she is doing this cost benefit analysis. So, and the reason why we're doing this cost benefit analysis is if it is going to cost the general public $20,000, um, can we get this on the PBS? you know, in the next few years. So it doesn't cost an individual person and it becomes more equitable because if the cost benefit says, yes, it will cost $20,000, which it will, but the benefit is X down the track of, you know, you not needing to see a mental health professional, you staying well, you getting back in the workforce. Then, of course, we've got a good argument for the PBS to put it on the PBS scheme. But at the moment, nobody in the world has done that that research so I do have a conflict when I'm saying that but I'm saying it because I would actually like it to be on the PBS and not just all in a whole pile of private clinics where most people with treatment resistant depression aren't going to be able to afford it no absolutely and that was where my my initial concerns when I saw that that number and I was going to let you tell me because I didn't know if it was correct or not yeah um, yeah the that initial number I thought well no no one who actually needs that because most people with treatment resistant depression don't work they no, can't no. work no. They, they can't afford that so no. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're doing the research to be able to and outsource thinking you know funding is going to be the only way um yeah. to be able to get the beneficial the sponsorship the, the ability for these people to get seen yeah, um exactly. wow yeah that is that is incredible so you know obviously timing 
there, there is so much there. So everything is moving too fast to actually get ourselves to the point where we need to be ready for this. You know, they've given the, yeah. the date, but I don't think there's gonna they're gonna be ready for it until well. No, after. I don't know. I kind of, you know, I've kind of, I, I, from from when they made the announcement back in February, I've been talking. I, you know, I talked to Norman Swan, and I've been on the ABC, and I've done podcasts here and podcasts there, and I'm just kind of like, well, you know, at the same token, I also have a day job, and and and, and I actually, I'm just about to launch the biggest trial in Australia, and I, it's kind of like, well, you know, they didn't, the TGA didn't listen to um, experts in the first place. Actually, we've just got a paper about. About how they didn't listen to us and said that we, we, they were rushing so you know I, I can't do any more work than I currently do you know I there's no more hours in the week so you know they I really just really hope it, we don't end up with egg on our face and 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 we try and get be shut down or something in the next few years because something's gone wrong because there are a lot of us going safety 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 here people yeah, to put the brakes on it a little bit so yeah. you have everything in the field yeah yeah um, Ella, sorry, you wanted to say something a couple of times. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to go back to what you were saying about safety. So just to hone in a bit on the treatment resistant uh, depression, is one of the factors that you're considering that perhaps has not been sufficiently researched how um, the, the drug interactions with your typical antidepressants that many uh, treatment resistant depression people are trialing but mm. also how that's interacting or um, differentially being metabolized by people who then try psychedelics mm. so is there any is there any concerns for using psychedelics with people who are on antidepressants or yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so one of the things that we have to do um, and it is a safety it's a safety well it's a safety and also it's uh, um, an efficacy issue. So um, uh, yes, there are drug-drug relationships. And so some of the, um, the people in the UK looked at that very early when, we, when they first started experimenting uh, um, with these interventions again. And one of the things that they suggested um, for a number of different reasons, not only to get rid of the drug-drug interactions, but also to improve the efficacy of the um, psychedelics is to actually remove people from all their existing medications. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that you're taking, say, an antidepressant, we know that has serotonergic effects. It fills all our serotonin um, um, uh, receptors in our head. If you're then giving someone a psychedelic that acts on the same receptors, there's going to be no space for them. So what we do is we um, wean people off their medication um, for six weeks to allow their brain to return to what would be their resting state levels. And then we give them the, the psychedelic experience, which is different, the receptor, you know, a different set of receptors that were activated, but it does get rid of the drug drug interactions, which can cause safety problems, but it does mean that the psychedelics have a better chance of working. Mm. Yeah. there's still a risk isn't there because when you are weaning people off the antidepressants you've got to oh yeah 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 and so this isn't this is a, this is another thing that I'm quite concerned about so I, I'm not concerned that psychiatrists and um, can wean people off their medications because they do that all the time to change them from one to another but you know it's a long period of time so usually when psychiatrists are changing people on the medications it might be two weeks but we're talking about a six-week period here where we really need to make sure that that, that 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 these drugs are completely out of their system 
Um, and that's a lot of monitoring. And there's no safety guidelines how to do that at the moment. And I, so I, whenever I talk about this in any public arena, I'm going safety, safety, safety. And it's a big problem at any point of the puzzle that we're trying to solve. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I guess each point of that safety needs to have that further data, but also needs to start to gain further data. So there's exactly. a bit of that leeway. Yeah. Gonna... It's like more data, more data there, more data there, more data there, more data there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, a lot of people will speak from their own experience on the street, you know, with these types of therapies, because lots of people have used them and have spoken openly out about them and how they have helped them but they have done and been involved in it, but they've done the work beforehand. And like we were saying before, you know, even the, the taking off the medication, there is going to be not only the 20 hours of the, 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 the two of the clinicians being in there with them, but it's also the preamble. And like those who have come into this medicine on the black market, they've done a lot of work prior to actually even consider that or be open-minded enough to be into that a lot of these people are going to come straight in be offered this up and they're like I have no idea what this is what yeah. you know and then explaining to them about it it's going to be yeah it's going to be very interesting to watch and I can understand your frustrations <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> um so you know obviously there's so much more to talk about with that but I think it would be very interesting to have a, a, a another discussion with you after it's all kicked off to see where everything's lying in that. Are you going to be doing some of the treatments? Um, have you, you've done obviously the training, you're going to be head first into some of the treatments with people when it kicks the... Yeah, so we we've we've already got some we've already got pilot studies and we've we, we like you introduced at the beginning. You know, I I have led the 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 way um with some other colleagues in Australia. So we have got done some pilot studies. Um, uh, we're about to launch the biggest uh, study in Australia for um treatment resistant depression. Um, uh, we well we launched it on the first of um uh, February, but we're about to start enrolling for it in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, um, we, 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 I, I will certainly be with there with all my, one of the things I've always said, um, and it doesn't matter, I mean, I'm very senior now in terms of the research, but, you know, you have to stay grounded and you have to stay working with your team. So I've always been, you know, jump in the deep end with everybody. I don't sit in my ivory tower and tell them what to do. So yeah, I'll be done there with them. <laughs> Um, another question I have, and it may it may be a little bit of a different difficult one to answer, but I'll, it was something that I considered in my mind with with these types of therapies. As you said, you know, you've got a twenty hour session. You may not need sometimes multiple treatments because sometimes people do feel like they can just have those treatments and then move through psychotherapy or mm -hmm. um, psychology and counselling afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so, from the pharmaceutical perspective, obviously there is an interest um, financially that um, medications are provided and people can remain on these and be um, successful for the rest of their life with those who aren't treatment resistant. Mm -hmm. How do, are you going to see, do you think, or are we going to see a little bit of a pushback from pharmaceutical companies? And I know there's new treatments, no new treatments coming through, which is maybe a positive. Mm. Um, but those that are still there, will there be a push still to be using those versus this, even if cost wasn't a factor? 
Uh, I think that's a tricky question to answer. I don't think it, that comes back to something I was saying earlier. You know, a third do get better with existing medications. Yeah. So why would we take them off the market, you know? Um, and why why would we as clinicians and, and researchers recommend anything different? Um, I think there's always going to be um, people out there that are going to be conservative and wouldn't even want to try psychedelics. Um, uh I'm not, I look, I, I know that there's a lot of controversy in the pharmaceutical industry at the moment about all of this psychedelics and there's lots of people trying to jump on the bandwagon. I, I don't know whether there'll be necessarily pushback about that. There could be, there, there could be, but, you know, I, I guess my uh, takeaway point would be as a mental health professional, we need as many tools as we possibly can do in our little toolbox because of individual differences. So not everything is going to work for everybody. So, you know, traditional pharmaceuticals work for some people. I don't want to take that option away. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So one other, one other, I keep on saying one other, but the on psilocybin to finalise that, are you seeing any risks at all associated with anything like psychosis being induced by um, psilocybin? And is that is that something that is around the safety that you're considering? Yeah. So I look, it's not recommended for people that have got a history of psychosis. And even if that psychosis is in the the, the um with people, so some people with very profound um depression can get psychotic events. And so we in the industry have just blankly said people have had psychosis, schizophrenia, psychotic experiences. We just we're, we're just not going there. And I, and I really do hope people uh, stick with that and stay with that decision, because I think it is a, it is a safety issue. Um, in terms of, you know, when people do have that profound trip, um, and so they have those out-of-body experiences or um, visual hallucinations, so those psychotic-like experiences. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's bad. In fact, you know, people often talk about those those kind of experiences as being really quite pivotal to the psychedelic experience and helping your brain open up to new experiences. Whether they cause any long-term problems, that's the issue I'm talking about with the long-term safety profile. I, I, I suspect, based on a couple of cases that we have seen, and, and um, that those kind of bad trips with profound kind of psychotic experiences, rather than leading to um, further psychotic experiences, which I, I, I don't see and I, I've not heard of, I think it could re uh, result in some trauma rather than more further psychosis yeah so bringing up a new thing to be dealing with yeah yeah, yeah. um amazing um i'm very much aware of the time susan and i want to respect that for you so i want to bring it back to really simple and i and i i appreciate so much of what you're doing and your knowledge and really your time in that what you have got on your plate right now i i really really appreciate it's, it's actually a lot i've i've actually started to say no to most people now i just looked at my diary the other week I'm like, oh. yeah, absolutely but and i but i understand how passionate you are about it so it's beautiful to get it out to a wider audience and to get the correct information out to the right audience because i think that's so pivotal where this is going to be taken um, so to bring it back to simplicity, from a mental health perspective, what do you see as, say, the three or five most important things people can do generally, or even that you do, 
daily, weekly, monthly, that is really important for our mental health. It's funny. So I was a little before before I was um, uh, well known for my psychedelics research. I actually was a little bit of a COVID ambassador, and I worked with the Victorian state government, helping people with their mental health all throughout COVID. Because we all know how much locked in our homes really influenced uh, people's mental health. So I have got lots of blogs and websites and all sorts of things about what you can do at home. Okay. So number one get off your chair, exercise people, you know, what's good for our body is good for our mind. And if we are stuck sitting in an armchair for days on end, it's not going to make us feel that good. So honor our body. So honor it in terms of number one exercise, but also honor it in terms of what we put inside it shit in shit comes out let's just be colloquial you know if we put lots of crap in our body we're not going to feel that good either um, <laughs> and I am not telling I am not telling people to not have the old glass of wine and celebrate with our friends I am not telling people not to have that chocolate because it looks really good some days I'm just telling you not to do it all of the time you know be 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 honorable to what is going inside of um the other thing is our relationships are really important to us, um, really important. They're important that we share with our friends and our colleagues, you know, our emotions don't, you know, it, it's it's always difficult when we are starting to feel, um, uh, I, I guess, sad or notice unusual things in our environment. But having the support of people that you love you increases your oxytocin and increases your self-compassion. So making sure that we have those really important relationships in our lives. And if we're in toxic relationships, get out of them. So importance of people around you, I really emphasize. And then if on top of when you have honored your body and you've been exercising and you've eaten the right things and you've put the right things inside your body and you've shared with your friends, your colleagues and people that are important around you. And if you're still not feeling good, go see a mental health professional. Mm, yeah. Wow. I all new respect for you. And I, I love that you said all that. And thank you so much for doing that work during COVID because there's been a huge rise that I've noticed in my clinic of mental health um, and difficulties associated with that. So, and I feel like a broken record saying exactly those three things. And then <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's like, are you exercising? Are you eating right? Yeah, you can have fun. Yeah, <laughs> are you yeah. talking? Vitamin D. Vitamin D is another one. Vitamin D. I mean, if you're exercising, you're going outside, so you're getting the vitamin D. Vitamin D is so important for your mental health. I couldn't say it like so much. Vitamin D is so important. So get outside. And most people I see, and most people other practitioners are seeing, and you probably do too, are all deficient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people are deficient all the time. And, you know, and then there's all the safety, sun safety things. So a lot of people put way too much sun cream on when they go outside. And so they're not getting that vitamin D. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you so much. That's a perfect closing. Now, how can people support you? Um, and I, I always like to add this. And I, as a researcher, though, you know, obviously, it's a little bit tricky for people to, you know, follow you in certain places and that sort of thing. But how how can we how can we help? How can our, how can our listeners help you? Mm -hmm. So um, I have a profile on Twitter and LinkedIn um, and um, I constantly looking for research participants to do our studies. 
Um, we have um, some really important work um, ongoing constantly. Uh, we have studies where we're investigating novel interventions for body dysmorphia, novel interventions for schizophrenia and depression. And it's not just psychedelics. We're looking across the board. You know, I, we really need to think about lifestyle factors. We really need to think about all novel nutraceuticals um, as well as the psychedelics. So if you follow my Twitter, you'll see what we need help with. Mm, incredible that's an easy one <laughs> incredible and we'll put the link to that there so everyone can find you as well on the thank notes thank you. Um, thank you so much i no appreciate problem. your time and good luck with everything and we'll be watching thank you thank, <laughs> thank you, you very much students, so i appreciate thank your time today thank you i will very much look forward to seeing the podcast and uh and other things that you guys have been doing it's wonderful thanks thank you so much thank you thank you bye Thanks for listening to the Revital Health Podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Revital Health, as well as our website, revitalhealth.com.au, for upcoming podcasts, workshops, and speaking events. Find out about specials happening in the clinic and all the show notes and links mentioned in the podcast. Please remember that this information discussed here is general information and is not intended to diagnose or treat individuals. Please speak to your healthcare professional before embarking on any new treatments, lifestyle changes, medicines or supplementation to assess your suitability. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you again soon.